This week on The Futurist, Elena Hiltunen. I'm very scared of the future when it comes to the climate change. Well, welcome back to The Futurists. I'm Rob Tursik, your co-host of The Futurists. And each week on this show, we interview somebody who is designing, planning, and inventing the future. And just before we get to this week's guest, I want to have let my colleague and co-host, Brett King, do a survey of some of the recent developments on the forefront of the future. So over to you, Brett. Give us a quick wrap-up. Thanks, man. Well, um, you know, there's... Uh... There's this continued debate, of course, in the community writ large, the scientific community, about what effect artificial intelligence is going to have on society. Those like uh, Ray Kurzweil and Peter Diamandis think artificial intelligence is going to create this world of abundance. But we've had people like Stephen Hawking and Elon Musk uh, frame their concerns about this. So the question is, what do AI researchers and scientists think about the potential upside versus downside of uh, artificial intelligence. Well, a recent survey of AI researchers around the world agree that AI decision-making could cause catastrophic outcomes. What percentage? About 36% of AI researchers think like that. So uh, this really tells us we need a plan in terms of how we should be integrating artificial intelligence into our society. And uh, as we've discussed numerous times on the show, it probably starts with ethics. Secondly, um, you know, I wanted to talk about the fact that there is uh, a lot of activity with NASA going on at the moment. They're about to try uh, um, deflecting an asteroid by crashing in a uh, spacecraft into an asteroid. Um, what can possibly go wrong with that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But this asteroid is is not going to pass anywhere near Earth. It's it's uh, you know its closest uh, distance is about seven million kilometers from Earth. So uh, um, you know we'll see um, where that happens. And of course, we just saw. Uh, the James Webb Space Telescope um, uh, release uh, photos of Neptune with its ring system, which is is pretty uh, pretty cool. But um, the last one I'll leave you with is uh, in terms of self-driving tech, um, Volvo has uh, introduced their new electric car, and it won't let you drive if it detects you're drunk. So, um, you know, this is some of the tech that I think is going to be a stopgap uh, before we get to full autonomous cars. Maybe you come in that sideways that way, you know, one step at a time. <laughs> well, thanks for that quick roundup, Brett. This week's guest is coming to us from Finland, uh, where she's the author of a number of books and the CEO of What's Next Consulting. So, Brett, let's welcome Elena Hiltonen to The Futurist. Welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hi. Happy to be here. <laughs> Great to have you with us. Thank you for joining us. So uh, it is, 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 a, is a Finnish future, futurist ever finished? Sorry, I'm, that's a bad. <laughs> that, that's a bad joke. No, that was almost a joke. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Almost a joke. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you very much. We we love to have guests join us from other places because uh, you know as the old adage goes, uh, the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed, and in some ways, Finland is um, living in a future that it certainly wouldn't have chosen. Uh, circumstances beyond your control are sort of dictating what happens around your borders uh, and even kind of a significant change to your borders. Can you give us a quick, quick view of what's happening right now that's going to shape the future for Finland? Well, we are trying to join NATO and and I, I think that this is, we are on the way to NATO and, and people are very happy about that here in Finland. Um, and uh, but still, when we think about Finnish military, we have been prepared for Russia for decades because we have had our two, uh, two wars with Russia in 1940s. So since that, of course, we have <laughs> noticed that we have a challenge with our eastern border. So we have been prepared for that always, all the time, uh, and um, we have had this threat. And Finnish military is there, uh, and um, we have this. Um, people are very happy to defend their country here in Finland. When there have been some research studies about uh, how willing people are to defend their countries, Finland is in the top. 
So we it are makes very sense. happy. You know, historically, yeah. Finland has been stuck between two difficult neighbors, right? Uh, between uh, Russia, of course, and, and, and centuries of domination by the Russian Empire. But also there's a period of time where Sweden, your neighbor on the other side, also dominated. Uh, so so you, oh, got, you got to be tough to live in that neighborhood. I guess. <laughs> well, we are very good friends with Swedish people and Sweden. So, uh, for example, when it comes to the military, we are doing a cooperation. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think the uh, Baltic Sea is the most important thing here in uh, when we think about the defense of Finland. It's not necessarily the border, but Baltic Sea. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. The the other element of this is like um I, I've noticed in a lot of your writing, Alina, you talk about um climate as a key element of defense strategy. You know, um in the United States, where Rob and I are today, of course, um, you know, the US Defense Department was quite vocal in terms of climate risk, dismissing the the climate denial, um, you know, for for um, well, a couple of decades now, really identifying it as a key strategic risk um, for the United States and counting as a defense, uh, you know, as part of their defense strategy. So why does climate align with defense, you know, as a sort of a natural thing these days that we see when, when it's talked about? Yes, it's not only the climate change that is causing threats and and uh, something to uh, think for armies. Uh, it's also the uh, biodiversity, loss of biodiversity that is problematic. And these are the two things that are really causing problems uh, all around the world. And if we think, for example, climate change, it's, it's causing uh, the rise of the sea level, which is meaning that uh, many of the cities are located next to the sea, and then there is uh, going to be more and more climate refugees. And this is causing um, security challenges for many countries. And of course, there might be uh, wars over uh, fresh water, for example. And if you think that people are going to lack food, lack uh, water, fresh water, so what? Uh, this is something that is causing uh, security threats, really big security threats. And uh, this is actually something as a futurist, when I'm talking about the future of whatever future of health, future of uh, traveling, future of logistics, future of technology, digitalization. I always start my speech uh, about climate change and biodiversity loss because mm. they are the biggest threats of the humankind. And the, well, the, the thing thing is, sorry, the planet is planet is surviving without human beings, but we are not surviving without the planet. That's right. That's a good point. The planet will carry on. Yeah, be, you know there may be different life forms here, even if we end up killing ourselves. How does climate change affect Finland in in your particular region? Is that um, well, how does it manifest in in the north? Well, actually, uh, Finland is one of the places that climate change is affecting very much, and and the uh, average temperature has been rising. Uh, uh, twice, uh, four times more than uh, the average temperature all around the world. So the temperature is rising here. And I live in the southern part of Finland. And the challenge here is that we used, well, we used to have beautiful white winter ta- winter times. And now it's totally black because we don't have the sun here. Uh, yeah, it's it's really it's really dark here. And, and usually we had the white snow, but not anymore. We have a couple of months, maybe, the snow here in the southern part of Finland. But when I was a child, it used to be the from November to March, we have the snow here, but now it's maybe uh, January, February, and that's mm. it. And it has really affected, and it's affecting in many level. One of the examples I'm saying to my customers about climate change is usually we think about the, the um, extreme weathers and, and um, melting of glaciers and these kind of things, uh, and which is happening and, and which are very big things. but. Uh, once I was going to one of my um, speaking gigs and I was waiting in the uh, tra- railway station and I was looking at the LED display, very big LED display, and it was actually broken. And then there was a sign in the uh, LED display that because of the summer, uh, the last summer was the hottest summer since 1937, this LED display was uh, like broken because of the heat. 
And this is something I'm saying to my customers. Think about this. These are the big, small things that are really affecting to your own uh, business environment. And what are they? And these can be really big things for you. And it's not the climate change that it's this only this big extreme weather and, and uh, rise of the average temperature. It's the small things that are going to affect every organization. Hmm. Yeah, that's certainly true. The world's changing in incremental ways, but they add up to big changes eventually. Definitely, yeah. What kinds of companies do you typically provide advice to? Uh, well, they are from different uh, industries and different areas, and they are like uh, government institutes and um, like um, really like companies and Maybe the biggest companies here in Finland. I've been visiting <laughs> every of those and okay. having my lectures and speeches. Why do they need a futurist? What What is the reason for hiring a futurist? Uh, I really hope that they listen to me when I'm having my speech, uh, and I'm mm-hmm. not only the clown having some entertainment for them. I'm, I'm actually, <laughs> I'm I'm fine humorous when I'm having my speeches. So I, it might be a little bit like combination of stand-up comics plus futures. But but there are actually serious things that we have to consider when we think about the future. And, and that's why I a little bit add humor on that, because otherwise it would be so sad stories about the future. But okay, they want to listen uh, my views of what is happening in the future. And this is something that I do. I look at information, uh, what is happening now, and think about how could this uh, be in the future, and what are the threats and possibilities, and so on. So one thing is that I really go to different companies, have my keynote speeches, but then I work with the strategy with many companies, and I have my own methods how to do the strategy work with my uh, with my clients. And it, it is very systematic, as I, I I am an engineer from my background, so I'm very systematic. I'm a like crazy person too, very um, creative, but I'm very systematic too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so would you say you're an optimist? Because most futurists, I think, are generally optimistic, but a lot of stuff we see in depiction of the future is dystopian. So you'd say pessimistic. I'm a pessimistic optimist. What does that mean? <laughs> I hope for the best, but fear for the worst. Ah, well, that makes sense given the times that we're in. That's probably that sort probably... of describes me and Robert together. <laughs> <laughs> okay, very good Am combination. Right, you really have to have the positive somewhere. You have to have the hope for the future. That I think is very important, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's why the optimistic. But then I see that there are really big challenges that the humankind is facing now. So we have to do something, and that's why I won't shut up when I go to companies. Uh, I will tell that these are the big, really big issues here. So do something. This is your responsibility too. Now, how do you know that those are big issues? The one, the point, the issues that you're pointing to. How are you so certain that those are the issues that matter? Uh, there's the one word answer to that: science. Oh. Mm. So you have a scientific methodology for forecasting? No, uh, no, I don't have. Uh, one thing is that I don't forecast the future. That is something that I don't do. I don't forecast the future. Uh, I anticipate different futures. And mm-hmm. it's not only one future. So it's not forecasting. It's thinking of different futures. My idea here is that we can't forecast. Nobody can forecast the future. And forecast can actually be quite dangerous. Because when people hear this forecast, some very uh, some president is saying that this is happening, and everybody is listening to him and and or her, and thinking that because he is the president, he probably knows that things are going to be that in the future, and then we might end up in the situation that people are only seeing this forecast happening and uh, missing all the other signs of the change, and mm-hmm. then the change can be very surprised for this. Companies so, or so scenario modeling, right? Scena- yes, definitely scenario modeling. Yeah. But but uh, you were asking that how do I know that these are the big things? Because uh, well, I, I trust in science. I read very much, and I know what scientists are talking about the climate change. What scientists are talking about the uh, biodiversity loss, and so that's why I know that these are the big things. What, I, what are some What are some good sources of information? Like where do you find find this stuff that, that uh, keeps you up to date 
Well, I have to say that thank you for asking that because I'm really like information freak. Well, uh, there are, for example, uh, World Bank, uh, United Nations, State, uh, uh, United Nations. And all the statistics they have, for example, the estimation of the growth of the world population. Then one of my favorites is um, our world in data, these web pages. Uh, and well, as you can see, I try to seek for statistics of what is happening. And then, of course, I try to see, uh, look at all different kind of like uh scientific uh magazines and nature, for example, scientific American. And that's one example. And, and then, of course, I, I read the Finnish uh, scientific, like popular magazines. And these are some of the these sources. But but do but you have your own? Do you have your own framing for this? You must take all that information in and then put it into your own context or your own hypothesis, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, I have my frame in my head, <laughs> so I'm, I'm like sucking all the information around the. Uh, like uh, in, from different sources, and then I'm organizing that in my head, and then I have my ideas of what could happen in the future. Actually, uh, I could say that uh, when you are asking that, do I have some like uh, frame or method for the future? Mm -hmm. I have one formula for the future, as ah. I am an engineer. So it's it's very good that um, to have everything in formulas. For example, I have a formula: what is life? Do you want to hear what is the formula for sure. life? Sure. Yeah, 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 of course. Death minus birth. <laughs> Death minus birth. <laughs> so, okay. okay, okay, but probably you want to hear my formula for the future. <laughs> so, yeah, anti anticipating the future equals facts plus imagination. Right. Facts mm -hmm. plus imagination. That's so nice. the idea, yeah. So the idea is that you really have to look at the facts of uh, today and the history, what are happening now. And then you add some imagination. So that's why actually I'm a fan of science fiction because in science fiction, you trust the facts, what is happening in science, and then you add the imagination. That's why yeah. I write science fiction, yeah. No, I was gonna say that because, um, you know, it, it the science view is obviously very helpful for scenario planning, but it's going beyond that and imagining the details of the world in those scenarios that science fiction is is very good for so um yeah i think that's that's an Im important element of 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 sci-fi and how it sort of reflects our view of the future for sure yeah um uh when when we talk about the science fiction you do what sort of time periods are you dealing with how far in the future we had david brin on recently and of course and, and gareth powell uh, was was a guest uh, recently as well and you know they're talking about thousands of years in the future in in many cases uh only some 10 years and actually i have one uh science fiction book published by my own publishing house and uh the name of the book was on that day, uh, 2000 X9. So X9. So I didn't say which decade it is, but some decade in, in 2000. So at this point in the show, what we'd like to do is ask you a series of quick questions. Um, and the answers can be very brief. Uh, so Brett, how about if you take it away with the lightning round and give us a few quick answer, quick questions with short answers. Okay, yes. cool. Here we go. So, Elena, what was the first science fiction you remember being exposed to on TV or books? Uh, Back to the Future. Back to the Future. Okay, mm. cool. When did you first realize that the future was what you wanted to base your career on? Um, 25 years ago. So what was it that where the penny dropped? It's a long story. Okay. All right, cool. <laughs> Name a futurist that has influenced you and why? Sohail Inuatullah. And he was actually uh, uh, the opponent of my uh, PhD thesis about weak signals. Very cool. Um, when you think about different futurists you've been exposed to, what's the best prediction you think a futurist has ever made or the best forecast? I think that uh, good futurists don't do any forecasts. 
You're the second. You're the second futurist that said that. Actually, we had the um, was Brad Templeton, wasn't it? Yeah, leaves me scratching my head, thinking, "Well, then, what kind of futurist are you?" But I guess it's the word forecast versus it is like, it's the prediction and forecast yeah, yeah forecast yeah. is a predict a prediction of the future uh, it's a pretty big yeah. distinction yeah. yeah and we yeah. don't try to predict we are not a fortune tellers yes we are okay. futurists yeah what science fiction story is most representative of the future you hope for that's a difficult question i think that uh my uh, science fiction stories <laughs> that's a that's a diplomatic answer. Um, and what future technology do you most hope for? Uh, synthetic biology. Yeah, very cool. Me too. Mm, cool. Well, great. On that note, I think it's time for us to take a little break. Uh, you're listening to The Futurists, and this week our guest is Elena Hiltunen, who's joining us from Finland. Stay tuned, because we're going to be back in just a few minutes. Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns and from cutting edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm JP Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Welcome back to The Futurist. I'm your host, Brett King, with my good friend, Rob Tursek, sitting in the hosting chair. And uh, before we jump back to Alina Hiltonen, who we've been talking to, the the Finnish futurist, I wanted to do just a quick deep dive, if I could, into some of the uh, um, battery technologies we're looking at for grid-level storage, because we've got Ramez Nam coming up in a couple of weeks, and, and Mez is one of the top uh, guys at Singularity talking about energy. But with all of the talk about um, grid grid failures around the world, you know, we have uh, Europe under pressure because of, of the Russia-Ukraine uh, situation and the, the energy uh, situation coming out of Russia with the pipelines and so forth. But we also have news of grids uh, under threat all around the world right now. We hear about California's grid under threat, Texas under threat, London is uh, is uh, potentially having going to have brownouts uh, in London, um, you know, during this winter, as well as in uh, Australia, um, you know, in the states of Victoria and New South Wales, we already see uh, um, projections of grid failures there, similar to what happened in South Australia um, a few years ago. Now, in South Australia, the solution uh, to this, you may remember, was a big bet that. Um, Elon Musk made with the South Australian government to help their grid or strengthen their grid through the use of a Tesla sol a battery farm linked to their solar generation and renewable capability. Now, um, Elon Musk made this bet um, that he would, if he could do this within 100 days, I think it was, that uh, South Australia would have to pay for him. But if he couldn't get the the battery farm up and running in that period, then uh, he they would get it for free. So he, he was successful and they did an initial 130 megawatt hour battery farm and have since expanded on that, adding another 65 megawatt expansion. And they plan to double the size of that battery farm again in the near term because it's been so successful. This has led to the uh, the grids in New South Wales and Victoria also adopting uh, battery farms. In fact, one of the world's largest battery energy storage, storage system, um, powered by Tesla, um, began operating um, in the state of Victoria back in December of 2021. And uh, it can power, or the battery storage is has enough power for more than 650,000 homes for an hour. Now, why this is important is because uh, previously what those uh, energy grids would have to do is have online generation capacity built with around gas-fired uh, gas uh, turbines to rapidly generate energy in the case of load balancing issues. This is what caused the South Australian grid to fail when two um, tornadoes broke out in South Australia. I didn't even know South Australia had tornadoes and that's, you know, that's there. But um, we see tech 
Texas now getting 15 utility scale battery storage sites. We see California has uh, launched um, a, a number of battery storage facilities there. 2,500 Tesla Powerwalls in a plant to deliver 16.5 megawatts of uh, storage energy in just one um, battery farm there. So the question is, what is the technologies we're going to use for these types of batteries? Well, this is where it gets really interesting. We're using uh, lithium-ion batteries right now, but some of the new technologies we're looking at are not actually based on lithium-ion, but are based on some much simpler technologies, like the use of salt molten salt and the use of uh, seawater and things like this for much lower cost uh, grid level energy storage. But the real change that's going to be interesting here is that the if we're looking at renewable resilience for um, climate proof or future proof energy grids, we are going to have to change the way we think about grid design. So battery storage isn't going to be like these massive uh, generations facilities that we have, um, which are centralized on the grid, they're most likely going to be distributed systems where these batteries are stored in multiple locations in cities, in homes, and so forth to make the grid more resilient. It's a big shift in the way we think about uh, grid design for energy resilience. So we'll see what uh, Mez has to say about that in a few weeks when he's on the show. Back over to you, Rob. Looking forward to hearing that. It's interesting, your uh, your brief report there ties together a bunch of the trends and topics we've been talking about on The Futurist for many weeks. Uh, certainly decentralization has been a theme that comes up again and again, particularly with regard to Web3. But here we're talking about a kind of decentralized power grid. And of course, that power grid is necessary um, because the climate itself is changing. And so as the climate changes, the, the need for energy has also been evolving. And so that's forcing governments around the world to contend with the notion that a new kind of power system is required to deal with a new kind of climate. That brings us back to the topic that we were talking about just before the break with Elena Hiltonen, who's our guest. Uh, she was telling us a little bit about climate as a major threat, uh, something that's undeniably going to be in the future, uh, and it's going to shape the future, and that her clients need to be prepared for. Let's return to that topic. So welcome back. Thanks, Elena, for waiting for us as we took our break. Thank you. And I was actually listening to this battery story. And can I tell some little detail? Yeah, please, sure. Yeah, in Finland, we are actually uh, starting to create batteries from wood. Wood? Wood? Like nan nanocellulose. Yes, okay. oh, from wood. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Actually, I didn't mention graphene because that's another tech, obviously, yeah, that is. we'd use. Yeah. yeah, but tell us about nan nanocellulose. Well, it's it is something that we are starting to make. This I'm, I was just reading one article here that uh, we are. Well, I don't know more about the technology, but I know that there are some research and development processes how to make these uh, batteries from nanocellulose and from wood. Mm -hmm. And because we are uh, in Finland, we are living from the forest. Yeah. So the forest industry is yeah. one of the biggest industry here. Yeah, yeah. So no, short, are... no shortage of wood in Finland. That's for sure true. No, no, not, not yet, at least. Yeah, so so this is one of the inventions that Finns are doing. That's we really have cool. quite nice ideas. Actually, then we made from wood, uh, from birds, actually, I think, uh, this um, sugar called xylitol. I don't know if you have heard about this xylitol. Yeah. Uh, it's we, we call it xylitol that, here. Yeah, yeah. So we use it's it's a Finnish invention and it's good for your teeth. So yeah. actually uh in daycare the little kitties are chew having the chewing gum xylitol chewing gum uh, after every meal. So it's better oh, for really? your sugar. Yeah, yeah, that's good for their teeth. That's cool. Well, it's smart to use the resources that you've got at hand. Um, mm -hmm. You know, one of the other things, one of the other forces that shapes the future is geopolitical attention. And of course, uh, to build the lithium ion batteries, uh, well, those rely uh, heavily yeah. on rare earths. And yeah, we all know where rare earths come from. And so mm -hmm. these days, everyone's wondering, can we be so dependent? Can we afford to be so dependent on a country that might not be looking out for our best interest in the near future? And so that's forcing countries to consider alternatives, whether that's uh, batteries built with nanocellulose or using things like salt. 
and seawater. Yeah, and and, and graphene. Graphene is actually something that I have been expecting to boom already when I was writing my book uh, about future of technology. And it was published in 2014. I was already writing about uh, possibilities of mm-hmm. graphene in the book. And yet, come on, eight years after. And, and this has, yeah. has Well, this happened. is where I think carbon sequestration is obviously going to lead to more graphene development because it's Definitely. the obvious use of the you know carbon sequestration byproduct is to create graphene uh, batteries and, um, you know, the buckyballs and all of, all of those exotic materials, nanotech. I heard they were having trouble manufacturing graphene at scale. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. There's, but there's a new modified um, application, graphene with a Y, which is a new process they're working on. Um, so, yeah, but, yeah, it is at scale is, is the big problem. But if we're going to build a space elevator, we need graphene, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, and that's imminent, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> I, I um, think we might have to wait for a couple of uh, years, oh no, decades or centuries maybe, maybe for the space elevator. Yeah, but I've been writing about that too. So yeah, I know what you're talking about. But some of the things in the near future that you were just speaking about a moment ago, I think we might want to revisit uh, because those seem em- imminent and very real. You talked about climate refugees, and you mm. spoke the, you spoke about the prospect of a water war, a battle over mm. freshwater supplies. And while there's probably an abundance of fresh water in Finland, that's just not true in other parts of the world. And so we're already seeing uh, tension in the Middle East, uh, problems arising in India. You know, the the control of the Himalayas is a big issue between India and China because that's basically the water tower for South and East Asia. Yes, uh, and then the glaciers are melting there, and this is causing the challenges. Well, uh, more water at the first, but l- later on there will be big, big challenges with this. And this summer we saw some of the big rivers in in China run nearly dry. Uh, you know, water levels were, dr- were dropping drastically. Uh, also true in Europe. You know, the Rhine River and the, the Seine uh, were both at historically low levels. This summer, uh, the Rhine was even closed to, to traffic at one point. It's the busiest busiest river in the world for industrial traffic. So these issues are not really lying out in the future. They're quite clear now. Yeah, what do now, you anticipate yeah. in the next five years? How Will this problem get worse? Was this hot summer the coldest summer we're going to have for the next five years? I'm very scared of the future when it comes to the climate change and biodiversity loss. And, and we... The humankind is expert in in messing around here in this world and polluting the world. Uh, it's it's not only the climate change, but if we're thinking about, for example, the pollution, 99% of the world population are living in the areas where the air quality is poor. 99%. And, and we are dumping like 80%, uh, well, from used uh, and wastewater, not un- not treated, so untreated, eighty percent of the water is poured back to the lakes and seas without uh, any treatment. Eighty percent, mm. and so. and these the numbers are like amazing, amazing. So we we have really challenges, and I I think the one big challenge is because we think all all we think about is economic growth. We've traded off profits for the lives of humans because, like, let's look, let's face it 10 million people die every year from pollution, air quality pollution. Mm -hmm. This is not. This we're not talking fossil fuels and its role in climate here. We're just talking about deaths from air pollution, air quality. Actually, fossil fuels are one reason right. of the deaths of, of, of exactly. the air pollution. Yeah, and 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 we, you know, you could argue that we had the technology to in the seventies. We could accelerated solar and renewable energy production. If our priority was society and the health of our citizens, then we would have prioritized that over burning fossil fuels and we didn't. So we made a decision to trade off human lives for uh, fossil fuel profits. Um, And that is, I think, that says a lot about the heart of the problem with capitalism in a climate-aware world, that the world is going to, if we push for sustainability and things like that, we're going to have to change our view of capitalism. I, I think that's Definitely. pretty pretty necessary. There was one uh, really interesting article about green 
growth, and this is something that is discussed now, is, is it possible to have green growth so the economy will grow and we will be sustainable? Is it really possible or is, is the growth always the thing that we should achieve or should we degrowth or, you know, decrease the economy? Is, would this be one, one of the options? I don't have the answers for that. Negative growth, but, which yeah, would negative, shrinkage, negative right? growth, yeah, yeah. <laughs> economic contraction. Uh, yeah, but um, I think that there is still hope. I want to believe that there is still hope, and and there are very good examples. What, what, uh, with the good achievements that the human kind has had. For example, when when we think about the uh, ozone uh, hole in the ozone uh, yeah, layer, yeah, we were successful at yeah, addressing we were successful, that. and actually. Uh, we had the uh, was it Montreal agreement about that, mm-hmm. and where the CFC uh, compounds were forbidden to use, and that was actually one very good agreement when we think about the climate change because the CFC uh, compounds are much much worse when we think about the carbon dioxide or uh, methane mm. uh, when we think about how how much they are warming the invi- uh, the climate. So that was actually something that we have done. And to be honest, I'm very happy that today, now uh, the president of the United States is really thinking about the climate change. Thank you for that. I I was so happy about the uh, Paris Agreement. I I found an interesting fact uh, um, yesterday, actually. Vultures are a big contributor to reduction in uh, CO2 emissions because they eat all of the the decaying animals. So there you go. I didn't know that, but yeah, <laughs> that's our you, solution. You talk. Yeah, was, we need more vultures. Obviously, um, I thought we uh, had enough on Wall Street. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I knew that was but coming it, too. Yeah. Alina, um, you know, you, you talked also about the eco refugee situation, and we've seen some um, varying estimates to this. You know, three hundred million to over a billion eco refugees. Some as high as one point six billion. Um, we, we, you know, I mean, Europe has had to deal with refugees over the last few years with the Syrian crisis and so forth. But you know, we're talking about a scale of influx of immigrants that that we've you know that isn't even equivalent to what we saw during the second world war or or things like that it's just almost mind-blowing how how is that going to change this issue of global governance you know you talked about the the CFC, uh, you know, the Montreal Accord and things like that, where we came together. We're obviously going to need to come together. How do we solve this problem of eco-refugees or how do you think the planet's going to respond? Well, that's, again, that's a good question. If I would have the answer for that, I would be very happy. But I I think that actually... uh, one way to cope with that is to really to act on the uh, climate change now and to try to uh, find the solutions. We have to adjust to the climate change, uh, but we have to prevent for it to happen. Uh, and and um, to really, we we have the means. We we know how to do that. So we have to change from fossil fuels to renewable fuels, and and that's one way. And then we have to, for example, plant trees and forests. So these are the two ways to do that. And then we, of course, have the technological solutions, but I wouldn't want to go there when we are thinking about climate engineering, because that's a risky business, I would say. We can't know what is happening if we are putting sulfuric acid uh, to the the fuel of airplanes and and putting that to the air. So that is one way to do that. But I I wouldn't want to happen. Yeah, can, yeah, that would be really well. Attentive. You know, um, you know, this geoengineering um, is obviously something that you know we we are already doing, but we've got to switch the intent to being positive. You know, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's rather true. Rather than that's true. incidental, yeah. right? Yeah. There's um, a great book called The Ministry of the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson, and he gets into a lot of these potential, I don't, um, you know, areas of geoengineering. Hopefully, we'll get him on the show soon. You know, hey, Robert, Brett, uh, Robert and Pretz, can I now say a little bit about my background? Because I want to tell oh, you what's what's sure. in my background. Yo, okay, my background is in chemical engineering. So uh, a master of science in that. And then I did my PhD thesis about weak signals. And that was a, uh, about 
futures or weak signals in organizational futures learning. And now I'm doing my second PhD um, to the National Defense University of Finland. And it's about uh, how to use science fiction in uh, national defense organizations anticipation process. So that's my background. <laughs> wow. I want to clarify oh. for the listeners that you were talking when you said uh, weak signals, you meant weak signals. Weak, yeah, yeah. Sorry weak about signals. my pronunciation. No, no, that's okay. It's okay. I, I can it's say just... it in Finnish. It's heikot signali. <laughs> Uh, let's talk a little bit about signal theory and information because uh quite a lot of what you're referring to uh when you talk about climate change and and planning for the future is very dependent on information and in particular information hygiene you know the idea of keeping your information clear being having reliable information reliable facts Uh, but i think it's safe to say that here in the united states but also in many other countries around the world Facts have been under assault. Facts have been under a kind of, uh, there's been a kind of siege on on the world of facts. Before the break, you shared with us a formula for thinking about the future. Uh, You said that the future can be envisioned as facts plus imagination. And I love that idea because it brings in that kind of creativity when you get into forecasting and strategy and planning and scenario planning. It relies a little bit on imagination, right? Because you have to come up with ideas. Maybe it's a range of different scenarios. So that's for sure the methodology we use. But let's be clear, that methodology is in jeopardy when we don't have solid facts that we can all agree upon. And let's add one more notion here. Uh, The assault on information. In the United States, we often will attribute it to adversaries, uh, you know, countries like Russia or perhaps China would say, oh, they're the ones that are polluting our environment with fake news. But let's be really clear. This has been a function of fossil fuel companies for many, many years preceding geopolitics. The fossil fuel companies filled us with disinformation about climate change. They did everything they possibly could to minimize the threat. And then sometimes it presented completely implausible alternative scenarios just to clutter the atmosphere and confuse people. Uh, Talk to me a little bit about the world of disinformation as viewed from Finland, because I know this has been a big issue in the whole Nordic region, not just Finland, but also in Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and all the way in Poland. Uh, You've been at the forefront, I guess, of of an information war for many years. Yeah, well, I have to say that when we think about information war or information influence operations, so uh, there's no border in that. It's, it doesn't, uh, you know, uh, there's no border now in this world because of we have the internet, so it's affecting to every one of us. And I would say that you in United States have had your part from Russian information influence in, in uh, 2016, definitely in your uh, presidential elections. And uh, that is saying how effective way that is to influence and when we are thinking about uh, and and when i'm studying now military studies and thinking about how to wage war in the future it's it's about uh, it's not only in the air or uh, uh, sea and and land it's also cyber and information influence then it's also space so we have different di- dimensions when we are thinking about uh, how to how to wage a war Mm-hmm. So, uh, information influence is actually something that I wrote my uh, latest uh, scientific article. It was about how to use science fiction to think about future information influence operations in war. And that was quite a <laughs> mm. nice uh, article. But really, yes, that's a big uh, problem, I think, everywhere in the world. And um, uh, but, but one thing that I'm very actually trustful is that uh, when people have the uh, education level high, they might have better uh, tendency to recognize that this is actually uh, not true and this is true. So I think in that sense also, the education is one um, tool for fighting back for this information war. And yeah, that's in, know- in, in Finland, we are very good in uh, education. I would yeah, say. no, I, 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 you know, the Nordics generally, I think, are, are, have got a really good approach to education and quite innovative, um, you know, beyond the sort of industrial age model of education that we have in the West. Um, I, I, I am reminded of the, the, you know, Socrates, Plato story of the stateship, actually, um, you know, which, which was talking about the philosopher king, but Thomas Jefferson used that to 
to say that actually the best way to have a democracy in the United States was to have highly educated citizens. And that's why education should be free, because that would maintain a a, a informed discourse around policy. Um, Yes, and and, and welcome to Finland. And yeah, welcome to Finland because education is free here. When you go to university, it's totally free. That's why me, as a child of a, a parents who didn't have education almost at all, I have I'm doing my second PhD thesis here in Finland. No. And that's that's a good thing here because you don't have to pay for the education at all. It's free. It's free for everyone, no matter if your parents are rich or poor, it's free for you. Mm. I think that's an economic advantage, personally. I think um, free education is core infrastructure, but that's yeah, my view. Here yeah, in the I United States, we have one approach to everything. We have one answer for every problem, which is the free market will solve the problem. <laughs> and yes. so instead of making education freely available to everyone, um, or healthcare, making that available to everyone, which is what a lot of uh, industrialized countries do, wealthy countries do provide those things. Here in the United States, we relinquish it to the free market, which is a chance for someone to profiteer. Mm. Um, and frankly, that's where it brings us right back to disinformation, because as soon as you have people with a vested interest, they're going to start to pollute the information ecosystem with the information propaganda that uh, that favors their interest. So here we have it. Um, we've got this kind of hairball um, at the yeah. heart of all these matters is you got to have some pure information in order to make a, a good decision. And when you have muddled information or facts that are in dispute, then it's very difficult for society to grapple with that and come to a determination that everyone can agree with. That is a big challenge. Elena, if you could, we love to have our futurist guests talk to us about the far future. And I realize your focus is much more practical, pragmatic on the near future, but go with us for a second, indulge us, please. Share with us your vision for a future out there. What gets you most excited? You were talking about, you, you talked about synthetic biology, for instance, as a technology you're keen on. Give us a forecast, if you will. Go for it. Well, uh, I will tell about my uh, latest science fiction book because in that there was a forecast about future. And actually, it was it was a, a book that there was a, um, a storyteller and it was a quantum computer, uh, artificial intelligence. When we are thinking about the artificial intelligence, it's very good to combine that with the idea of quantum computing, which is then like exploding the issue of artificial intelligence. But this quantum computer was really affecting to people's uh, lives. It was reading people's minds and ideas, and it was also affecting to people's dreams when people were sleeping, so people's dreams. And uh, so this was the story. And I hope that this... uh, this, I would call it like artificial uh, quantum entity in the future would be kind to people. That's the positive future and solve our big problems. You know, it's interesting because there's a lot of research about consciousness right now that thinks that consciousness has a quantum effect or is a quantum effect, you know? And so it, it, you know, you wonder whether to get super intelligent AIs, are we going to need to integrate quantum with AI? Because right now we're fairly, we're, we're a fair way off from that. I don't know of any researchers working on quantum AI right now, you know, but Maybe that's something we should research. But that, that's really a big thing in the future. And the, the second thing is really this um, uh, synthetic biology. How mm-hmm. could that change our future? Well, you should share to our audience. Tell me what you mean when you say synthetic biology yeah. for the benefit of the audience. Just give, give us a definition. Uh, synthetic biology is like, well, we could call that extreme gene manipulation. But this is something combining like, we, well, we could like create new um, creatures by synthetic biology. Mm-hmm. And um, for example, with the synthetic biology, I could have my dog glowing in the dark. And if I go to the, well, uh, black winter, <laughs> Finnish winter night outside, and I have my black Labrador retriever, and it would glow in the dark. Uh, and we, we could that is that a very Finland specific bo- use case. I have to tell you. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I remember working in Finland at one point, and, in and would you a have a long time ago? And it was like super dark all day. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I said to one of the engineers I was working with, I said, "What time does the sun come up?" And he said, "April." <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. But then when the I was going to say, do, up, do you think that? 
Do you think that Finland will breed reindeers with with glowing red noses? <laughs> well, actually, yeah, yeah, that would be. Uh, there are actually these spray uh, um, uh, things that you can spray on the reindeer, and it will start to glow in the dark. So, yeah, there you go. Yeah, fun fiction, yeah. fun vision of the future. Uh, well, uh, Elena Hiltunun, thank you very much for joining us on the show. It has been a great pleasure to hear your perspectives. Uh, always interesting to get voices from other places outside the United States. Uh, sometimes people think that, you know, at least Americans think that we decide the future. That's not really always the case. The future unfolds differently in different places and it's useful to get those perspectives. Thank you very much for joining us today on The where, Futures. Where can people find out more about you, Elena? Uh, well, www.elinahiltunen.com. That's my web page is. www.whatsnext.fi. Is the oh, that's second cool. one. What's next? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I have the what's next consulting. So this is my that's company. Nice. Yeah. Very cool. You know, Brett, before we wrap up, I wanted to point out one more thing that's actually quite exciting. Um, two of our previous guests, Tony Parisi and Mark Pesci, who both spoke to us uh, about 3D worlds and the metaverse, have released a new podcast and I've checked it out and it's really quite good. So I recommend that folks who are listening check out. A Brief History of the Metaverse, which is available as a podcast on all your regular podcast outlets from two fu futurist guests that joined us on this show in the past, uh, Mark Pesci and Tony Parisi. So do check it out. If you get a chance, Fantastic. go download the, the short history of the metaverse. And, awesome. Um, and thank you for asking me to come here. It has been very uh, nice to talk with you. It's always good to get futurists together. You know, we're, yes, you know, we, we, we love to talk about the future. That's why we chose to do this podcast. Thanks for joining us this week, everybody. Um, you know, if you like the podcast, don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes or Google Play or Podcaster Stitcher, you know, wherever it is that you download to Spotify, you know, wherever it is you download your uh, episodes from, leave us a review. That helps other people find um, the podcast and uh, or, you know, publish it on social media, you know, um, give us some comments, tell us who you'd like us to interview next or what topics you'd like us to cover and we'll go find future interests in those particular areas. Um, but uh, a quick shout out of thanks to our team that helps us put the show together each week, Lisbeth Severins, uh, Kevin Hersham, um, Sylvie and Carlo on the social media side, and the team at Provoke who help us put it together, as well as uh, the uh, team behind us supporting us on the Futurists. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you in the future. Well, that's it for The Futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did. Please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review that really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at, at Futurist Podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.